HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit rt11.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Every week on The Farm Report, we take you on a journey through our food system. Um, Off air, I am the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network, and I am really excited about today's show. Um, For those of you who don't know, July is Good Beer Month, and so we thought it would be fun to take a look at the agriculture side of beer. And of course, we could not do a beer show on the Heritage Radio Network without bringing in our very own Jimmy Carbone, who hosts Beer Sessions Radio. If you are a beer fan at all, you have to check out its show. It's live every Tuesday night. really a treasure trove of the craft beer industry. You can kind of swim the archives for anything you'd ever want to know on beer. And we're going to give you a little taste of him today. He's in the studio with us. Welcome, Jimmy. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me on the show. And then also joining us by phone, some old friends um, from who are, who are excited to share their new book with us, The Hop Growers Handbook, uh, Laura Tenick and Dieter Gehring. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi, Erin. So, um, Lori and Dieter and I all met when I was living up at Flying Pigs Farm uh, for the year. Uh, I worked a lot with Lori through American Farmland Trust, uh, a great farmland conservation organization that does a lot of fun programming with us here at the studio. And then Dieter was our all-star photographer for Farm Camp, um, and I knew about their passion or hops, but I didn't know quite how extensive it was. And so, Dieter, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got into the hop scene. Well, it's it's a long it's a long story, but the short of it is, we I was a home brewer about so twenty eight years ago, and the natural extension of that of the property is to try to grow some hops. So, did it as a hobby um, and uh, grew some hops up the side of the house and. 
course, they were hugely successful as a hobby. And about, uh, well, I don't know, three, four years ago, they started talking about this uh, craft or, you know, the farmhouse brewery law in New York State. And uh, I was thinking of uh, the possibility of changing careers from being a photographer to going into farming, and I thought hops might be a way to do it, so we we started the venture then. That's awesome. And so you guys um, already live on on a farm that has quite a bit of history for the area. Lori, it's your your parents' place, is that right? Yeah, well, actually, um, my family's farm was started by my great-grandfather, and um, was originally a dairy farm, and over the years transitioned into an apple orchard, which is what it is today. Um, it's called Indian Ladder Farms, and it's in Altamont, New York. And um, we have a, a big orchard and pick your own. We grow a lot of different small fruits like raspberries and blueberries, and uh, we have a farm store and a cafe and bakery and, uh, you know, have a lot of public coming here. Um, so a few years ago, my father um, passed down to Peter and I uh, a section of the farm, and uh, that was when we took ownership of it. You know, we'd been living here already, renting a house, you know, for some almost 25-plus years. And when we took ownership of the land, that's when we um, had the idea that we needed to sort of start our own farm within a farm. And that's how it all came about. I like that, a farm within a farm. Well, before we move too much further into the hops discussion, Jimmy, I'm hoping maybe you can tell us, for those of us who are beer drinkers, um, how are we experiencing hops in the glass? I mean, hops gives gives flavor. And, and actually, I, I read the galley book, the Hop Growers Handbook that you guys wrote, and it's really awesome. Um, it, it tells. I think I learned more about hop history than than I've ever known before. Excellent. It's really great, right? Guys, buy the book. But it, it definitely. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. You know, it puts flavor in your glass. I mean, I think it's what the, the whole. I'm sorry, I have a sore throat. It's day 23 of July, Goober month, so <clears throat> it's a little. Uh, but uh, it, it puts flavor in your glass, and I think everyone identifies craft beer with with hops. And you know an IPA, and I think that's really what took people away from mass-produced, you know, commercial beers without any flavor. And uh, so I, I've met uh, John Siegel from Siegel Ranch, and who was his family was a longtime New York hop, hop growers as well. In the fifties, they moved out to the Pacific Northwest, and they created the Cascade Hop, and from that a- Anchor Steam and Anchor Liberty. So it's like the roots of the whole craft beer. Really, even though the hops were growing in the Pacific Northwest. The hop growers were from New York, so it, it's you know you can trace everything back to New York, and I think this is really exciting to have you guys with this new book. Of course, we as New Yorkers love any story that begins with us. Um, well, Jimmy, also maybe you can give us a little context around the farm brewery law. Um, kind of what did that mean for the craft beer movement in New York State? I've been lucky, I think, from having Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I was I sat on the governor's, uh, it's like the New York State uh, Craft Beer Working Group with the, sec- the Secretary of Department of Agriculture and Markets. And I went up to Albany a couple of times. And it's, and it's really amazing just to see, you know, the focus that, wow, if we think of beer as an agricultural product as well as wine and cider and spirits, we can help upstate, we, we can help farmers. And uh, just in terms of flavor, like that's what I care about. 
any anyone who's making beer with New York State ingredients is making a better beer. I think they're being challenged to um, put something better in the glass, and, and I'm seeing that translate to more people. There's more breweries opening with a farm brewery license, and there's more people that want to drink you know real local beers. I think it's awesome using beer to stimulate the economy. Well, Lori, one of the uh, things that you talk about in the book is really kind of the the history of hops. Now, you take us way back to the Middle Ages, and so we're probably not going to cover all that ground in the show today, but maybe if you can nest us here in, in North America, because my understanding is that we used to, in in the you know Northeast here, be really the center of the hop production for the country and maybe the world, but... That's not the case today. So maybe give us a little sense of um, the hop scene um, over the last, I would say, let's let's put some boundaries around 150 years. Okay. Um, well, New York was really the um, epicenter for growing hops in, in the United States in the late 1800s. Um, in, I think it was 1880, um, the 80% of the hops grown in the country were grown um, right here in New York State, um, many of those being grown in the area around Cooperstown. Um, there were 40 acres of hops planted at that time, and um, they were producing, well, about 10,000 tons of hops a, a year at that point. Um, it, things sort of started to go downhill from there, uh, largely because, you know, as we know, when you have a really big monoculture, um, you become vulnerable to all kinds of disease and insects that are attracted to it. And uh, that kind of started to begin diseases, uh, fungal diseases like downy mildew, as well as um, insect infestations like hop aphids uh, began to be a major problem. And some of the people who were growing in uh, New York State at that time were part of the whole movement of people heading west to begin with. And there was um, a grower in Otsego uh, who decided to pull up stakes and move out to Yakima. And um, he took his hop rhizomes with him and planted them out there. And the thing about it, you know, my Dieter and I traveled to Yakima last summer. Uh, you couldn't think of a more different climate and place. Where is, uh, where is Yakima? New York to Yakima. Where, Pardon? Where, where in the country is Yakima? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. The Yakima Valley is in Washington State, cool. and it's a it's a high elevation desert, and um, there's really almost no rainfall there at all. And all of the water for the plants comes from the Yakima River, which is basically snowmelt coming down from the Cascade Mountains. And the extreme dryness of the Yakima Valley took away a lot of the problems that were brought about by moisture here in New York State. And they were as long as they had the sufficient water supply because hops require an enormous amount of water. Um, they had this enormous amount of water they could put in the ground, but none coming from the sky. So it turned out to be a really good environment for hops. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how it kind of took off from there. Um, and and, this, and that is now the epicenter of hop production in the United States. But we are seeing a, a resurgence here in the Northeast. I mean, can we give you guys some credit for that? <laughs> Well, I don't know if we can personally take credit. There are a lot, a lot of people involved in this, so, but we'll take a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dieter, maybe you can help us understand the hop plant. I mean, I was surprised that they, you know, grow to be upwards of 18 feet tall. They take over three years to reach uh, kind of production stages. So maybe you can give us a little sense of a, like, okay, I'm, I'm moving up 
you know, next door to you guys and I want to start my own hop operation. Um, what does that kind of look like and what kind of time frame am I in for? Well, you're, you're in for a kind of a long time frame. Uh, you're, you're in for a rather large uh, financial investment um, to get uh, the infrastructure up for putting up um, any kind of you know, commercial hop yard. Uh, the hop plant's a perennial. Um, it does take about three years to get to full maturity. You will get you know, some cones uh, for uh, making beer the first couple of years, but it really takes off. Um, People that, uh, the way I explain it is uh, people that are already in the apple orchard business or grapes, they're kind of set up for this kind of um, growing this type of plant. Uh, you have to have a very robust uh, trellis system. Um, if you let a hop grow, it'll grow to 30 feet tall. Whoa. Um, yeah. So you've uh, so most trellising is between 18 and 20 feet. Um, that's uh, just... Uh, uh, you get good production at that height, and then from a practical standpoint of equipment and so on for harvesting, you don't want to be much higher than that. Um, and also, since I'm afraid of heights, I try to keep my yards between 16 and 18 feet. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'm losing a little production, but, you know, it's worth it to me. Um, you have to have a good a good source of water. Um, like uh, Lori said, they require a tremendous amount of water. I mean, they, they want an inch and a half of rain a week. Um, you have to have a good way to supply nitrogen to them. They're a very, very nitrogen-intensive uh, 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 plant, and um, they, they require a, a fair amount of care, <laughs> as, as we found out. It's, it's, it's one of those things, like, you know, if you grow tomatoes as a hobby, boy, you grow some beautiful tomatoes. Well, and then try to farm them and sell them to the farmer's market, and all of a sudden you discover that it's farming. <laughs> and, and you have disease pressure, and, uh, and you find out all the, uh, all the problems along the way. And, and that was part of the reason that um, you know, we ended up writing the book, was because when, uh, when we were out there trying to find out, you know, oh, my God, what is this insect that's eating everything? And you'd, you know, you'd go to the Internet, and as you do for everything, you right. kind of find it. And, and our main source at this point is, you know, information from Pacific Northwest. Well, eating plants and destroying them a couple of years ago were Japanese beetles. So we went to, you know, the manual uh, from, from Oregon State University, and we looked it up, and there was no page, you know, for Japanese beetles, and we inquired about it. Wow. And that's because they don't have them. So you guys are, like, in many ways, like, writing some of the first resources that have ever been published for hops in this area. Well, I think well, what we Lori was have... able to do was to really pull everything together from, you know, the University of Vermont has been kind of a, you know, a, a leader in this. They started early on, and Cornell has, you know, been, been at it for a while, too. Um, but, but she did a great job of putting it all in one place, where you can just pick this up. As, as Steve Miller from Cornell kind of called, he says, it's kind of a cookbook, and there never has been for hops. Well, kind of, uh, well, in that kind of cooking space, actually, uh, Lori, I wanted to ask you, you did include a little bit of info on like other um, maybe ancient uses for hops. Um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, hops making you sleepy or, or brewer's droop. <laughs> Yeah, well, hops were originally not used in beer back way back when in the, you know, 
ancient times. Um, they were a medicinal wild plant, and uh, they were used. There, there's a lot of really strong chemical compounds in hops, and when you when you smell hops in the beer, you smell that really intense odor. Well, that's sort of demonstrative of all of the intense chemicals that are in there, and. Um, there is a compound in the hop that is a soporific, which means that it makes you sleepy. Um, it has been traditionally used to help with un- insomnia um, over, you know, centuries. And some of the earliest references to hops are in medicinal books that were written um, in, you know, like monasteries and so on about about the, the various things you can use hops for. They also have a, a compound that is very similar to estrogen. And for that reason, they are um, can be used medicinally to relieve some of the symptoms that women may experience, you know, with irregular estrogen, for example, during menopause. And um, another thing is because of estrogen, they're, they're, I don't know if any of anybody has heard the um, folk remedy for when breastfeeding to make milk come down uh, for the baby to nurse is for the nursing mother to drink a beer, and that helps the milk flow. And that's because of this estrogen-type compound in the hops. That's the effect that it has. Um, all of those are desirable effects, and it can in men have undesirable effects that may result from too much um, estrogen-like substances. And there is a theory that um, too much exposure to some of these compounds in hops uh, can cause impotence in men. Um, there was also a theory that uh, most of the people when hops used to be picked by hand, um, the overwhelming majority of the pickers were women and children. Um, the thinking was that men avoided that activity directly because it would let cause them to grow breasts. Now, I'm not tr- sure if all this is actually true, but this is some of the folklore and things that I found during the research for the book. But not and, something um, we need to worry about drinking beer, right? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I think alcohol also plays a role in at least some of these problems. So <laughs> it's hard to dissect with the hops or the alcohol at a certain stage, I guess. No, that makes sense. Well, Jimmy, I'm wondering, um, when we're thinking about, you know, the ingredients of beer, it's pretty simple, water, hops, and some type of malted barley, more or less, and then maybe a few other components for different types of beer. And I know that um, when we're thinking about things from an agriculture standpoint, um, hops definitely have gotten a lot of attention in that egg conversation, especially with this renaissance here in the Northeast. Um but as a kind of, you know, cash crop or percentage of volume, um, maybe can you orient us, like, how do we think about um, hops when we're making a beer? Is it like equal parts, barley, hop, water, or, or how much hop is in a beer? I think that from my understanding, hops are like the spice trade. You know, they're, they're, they're worth a lot and they give a lot of flavor and the, the price g- goes up. I think that in terms of the actual quantities of ingredients, it's really water and, and, and the barley or the other grains. So th- that's real, where, where the real need is. I know like with June Russell and, and the Regional Grains Project and a lot of what's going on in New York State is just even try to figure out what grains are going to grow well in New York State you know, to make beer and, 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 and spirits is a bigger issue. So the, the hops are kind of an easy thing to tackle. And I know that, that um, like Steve Miller at Cornell, they've been doing that for a while. So I think you can go out and plant like a half, half acre of hops 
and do fairly well with that. And then you really need to getting into. I think a big question for for these guys is, you know, is anyone now in New York State making any hop harvesting equipment? Because that seemed to be the holdup. Because once you get to a certain scale, like there's some cool things in this book about people that used to go up to the hop country for working vacations and, and harvest hops and then drink at night. So this hop culture is really cool. Like you know, like in southern France, you you would have students from Paris go down and, and harvest grapes. And I would love to see that come back. Get all the students from New York and go up and harvest hops. But yeah, so hops is it's like the spice. Okay. And, and we've had on uh, Joe and Dennis Fisher, they're homebrewers in Maine. They wrote a great book called Homebrewers Garden, and they were actually growing other things like dandelion that provide a similar flavor or bitterness that that. That working people, farmers have used over the years because at one point hops were for the nobility or they were taxed. So there's other things you can use to provide flavor and spice. So, Dieter, kind of on that note, when we're looking at infrastructure for hop production, um, what is the lay of the land and and have you noticed changes um, over Um, the years? Yeah, well, hop picking is uh, laborious. Um, And uh, it's a. the hops themselves have these uh, things on on the binds. They're called trichomes, and they they scratch. And if you look at any of the old pictures of hop picking from you know the 1800s, they're all wearing long sleeves and hats and stuff. And you have to remember this is August and September in upstate New York. It's hot, but they're covered up because you get what's called the kiss of the hop um, on you, and uh, it, it leaves a big scratch on you. Um, so the picking, hand picking is, is difficult, and as we found out, once you get up to this, you know, size, you know, you, you have hop parties every year, and uh, you get a keg beer and your friends come over and pick hops, but one hop plant is about 40 pounds, and it takes about one an hour to pick it. So if you're at a 1,000 plants... Um, after a couple of years, you don't have enough friends um, <laughs> to, to come over anymore. So you have to you have to go mechanization, and um, unfortunately, you know, because of, of the economy of scale, Pacific Northwest has all the hop picking equipment, and their machines are you know they're gigantic. You know, they're, they're like a million dollars, and they they take up an entire interior of a you know gigantic you know uh, warehouse building. Um, and so we were sort of in a, in, a, in a problem here in New York State where there were a few people making, you know, trying their hand at making some small pickers and stuff. And UVM uh, got some grant money to design a, a picking machine. Um, but ultimately, we needed to get the equipment from Europe. And we just delivery this past January um, of what's called a wolf harvester. Um, unfortunately, they don't make these machines anymore, so we had to go through a broker and get a used machine. And anybody of any size at this point is is really buying one. In fact, in New York State, I think we're up to 16 machines. And and what we're offering now at our farm, um, because there are a lot of people in the same boat, we're becoming this year a regional hop picking facility. Um, hops need to be picked right away. So when you cut them, you have about an hour the time that they leave the yard to being processed and picked and put in the dryer and they become unstable. And so we've sort of we've got about ten farms I think we're up to now because everybody planted hops, you know, two and three years ago. Well now if you put in a half acre of hops or better, 
you have a problem <laughs> if you can't pick them and dry them. So there are a lot of people, you know, counting on us. And I know that there's a picking facility in Oneonta that uh, has two wolves. And um, uh, the person who bought the sister machine of ours is out in Syracuse. And they're, they've got about 10 farms looking to, you know, get them going too. Wow, that's so interesting and, and so similar to what we hear from other types of agriculture, whereas, um, you know, one of the byproducts as things continue to consolidate and farms get larger, that it doesn't make sense for companies to be producing machines um, for small-scale facilities, for small harvesting. And I know so many farmers, um, particular vegetable farmers, who really get creative with um, producing their own machinery or adapting other things or creating their own tools and and adding to their skill sets as kind of like welders and small machinists. It's really wild. Right, right. Well, you know, like our our hop harvester is from 1973. Older than me. (laughs) And and we we do, we're also growing barley here on the farm, but we're only doing it on a very small scale. And because we're in Albany County, we don't have a lot of farms anymore around and so any of the bigger farms, the combines are too big to transport over the road to get to us. So, but our we we're, we're dealing with antiques. So you know we have a we have a 1948 combine and we have a 1962 combine that are small enough that we can pull behind a tractor. So our hop harvester is really our newest piece of equipment at 73. That's wild. We are gonna um, I'm gonna ask you guys to hold tight for just a second. We're gonna take a short station break and we will come back with more hop talk. So hang tight. Raised by the rays of the falling sun Cruel that rage about you, Cupid Makes half the killer of the mighty Python So a typical, a typical Ignites a heart and turns the other tear This is Odetta Hartman the song is called Daphne and Apollo We will be right back Hi, I'm Harold McGee. Heritage Radio Network.org is a nonprofit organization, which means they depend on the support of listeners like you and like me. The best way you can support this program and others like it is to visit heritageradionetwork.org, as I have, and click the donate button to become a member today, as I have. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. All right, we are back. Harold McGee is just the coolest guy. Uh, I'm such a fan. If you have not read his book on food and cooking, stop what you're doing. Go on to the internet. First, of course, purchase the Hop Growers Handbook um, by Laurie and Dieter. But right after that, yeah, you know, on on food and cooking is an essential uh, in anyone's home kitchen. Well, I want to talk, Dieter, you kind of touched on this before the break um, about the volatility of hops after harvest. So, 
most hops don't make it don't don't go fresh into beer there's a whole another set of things that happen after the harvest and can you walk us through that uh yeah well there's hops are used in two forms um, after they're dried which you know is basically what you're doing is you're stabilizing the the hop and the, the lupulin inside which is really what the the brewers want uh, the brewers hold um and then uh in, in most cases, it's bailed at that point, so it's compressed, but not too tight as to not, you know, damage the loop. Um, and then it's put into cold storage. Um, and some brewers use hops as whole cones. And in fact, uh, if you know Sierra Nevada, um, they still they still do only whole cone brewing. But most modern brewing equipment, especially uh, on smaller scale for craft brewers, is designed to use pellets. Um, so you need to pelletize, which is another step in the process, which um, we are not doing this year. We're we're farming that out to another place um, that will do all our pelletizing for us. What pelletizing does is it it makes it look, you know, like, oh, I, I don't know, like uh, if you've ever had a rabbit or a guinea pig, you know, the feed you feed that, it makes it look kind of like those kind of pellets. Um and uh, they're put into mylar bags and they're vacuum flushed. It makes them uh, much more stable um, and easier to use for the brewer. Uh, so that's yeah, that's yet another step that needs to be you know established in New York State. We we have about I think four pelletizing facilities at this point around the state. So and Jimmy, on the kind of beer making end of things, you know, what are you hearing from brewers about how they want their hops? Well, we've been lucky the last few years with New York City Beer Week. Um, like Kelly Taylor, who's who's the president of the New York City Brewers Guild, they've really gotten behind doing uh, this year as a state malt and and state hot beer, smash beer. So that's really f- it's encouraging the brewers t- to to work with the local ingredients. And exactly what what Dieter said is that they're used to working with, with hot pellets, but when you're getting these, these fresh hops in, or even you know other hops from New York State that might be processed differently. Um, the batch for them takes a little more care. I think I think it makes a better beer, and, and I think there's nothing wrong with taking a little more time. It's not as profitable. I think that you know breweries are set up to, to kind of knock out product, right. but I think that anything that, that that forces them to stop and take a little more time with the product does make a better beer. So I think that uh, by using any local ingredients or the wet hops, it's more challenging. But I think that everyone wants that beer and will pay more. So it's kind of like. When you go to the farmer's market in the middle of the summer and the recipe calls for one tomato, but there's like 18 different kinds of tomatoes and 18 different sizes. So you, as a, as a cook following a recipe, have to, you know, take a moment to like make some editorial decisions there. Yeah. I mean, it's sure different than just an, an industrially canned tomato sauce that they always have the same tomato. Everything's so for looking sure. the same. Well, one of the things that um, came up in the book uh, is kind of talking about the, the quote in quotes, uh, new normal of of climate and um kind of what growing season looks like and we think about sunshine and rainfall and uh the variation in in heat and the the kind of length of growing seasons and um i want to talk a little bit about that but i want to kind of frame it in this context one of the things i find so interesting about the craft beer movement is the the brewers the the drinkers the people kind of leading this movement um become de facto environmentalist. Um, as we said earlier in the show, if the primary ingredients of beer are, are hops and barley and water, obviously having a really clean, 
um, safe uh, water source is a, is a concern for brewers in addition to dealing very directly in these agriculture products. So, Lori, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about um, what you guys have seen um, having been in the same location for a couple of decades at this point with regards to kind of climate and, and how you think that being a, a beer um, maker, a beer drinker, and not, now a hop grower has informed your thinking with regards to the environment? Well, um, you know, we, of course, Dieter and I have always been strong environmentalists. Um, one thing I think is interesting of farmers in general, um, conventional farmers aren't always necessarily considered environmentalists, but in fact, in, to a certain extent, many of them really are because, as you say, um, farmers are relying on the quality of the water and the soil to produce their crops. Um, the other thing I think is interesting is, you know, some of the more conservative uh, conventional farmers uh, many of their peers may be climate change deniers, but you often don't see that amongst the farmers themselves because they are so closely tracking the weather. It's quite clear to them that the climate is, in fact, changing. And um, originally, farmers said, oh, well, global warming is a good thing because we're going to have a longer growing season. And it, for farmers in the Northeast, that's going to be economically a good thing. But we've all seen in the past several years that what's really happening is the severe weather patterns that are coming with the incremental warming of the climate, and that's what's really causing big trouble for farmers. Um, you know, one advantage we have in the Northeast uh, in terms of water is we have a lot of it, um, whereas agriculture in the West is, is suffering from the drought. And hop growers in the, in the arid regions are relying on snow melt and to water their crops, as I mentioned earlier. And as uh, the snow stops falling, it ultimately stops melting, and they're looking at, you know, where are they going to get their water from. Um, there's so many things in agriculture, you know, in, in one way it's good, in another way it's bad. Here we have a lot of water, but some of the, the severe rainstorms we've been getting um, are just really challenging for hop production. I mean, we will sit down and get, like, uh, two inches of rain in half an hour, and, um, you know, they, they say... There's a thing about hops where they, they like to drink a lot of water, but they don't want to be wet. And um, for a lot of standing water to be on the leaves of the hop plant is a very uh, dangerous situation because that's when the fungal diseases move through water, particularly downy mildew, um, moves along the surface of the plant through the water and takes that opportunity to infiltrate the plant. And that's one of the most serious diseases that we're facing here in the Northeast with the hops. So, you know, that's kind of a long rambling statement about water, but there's a lot of different ways to look at it and ways it's impacting us. Um, I certainly, when people plant hops, um, because they are a permanent crop, they do require so much water, you really need to make sure that you have a very um, strong and ample source of water, whether it's a pond or whether it's groundwater, something that's constantly replenishing. And, um, you know, this is a major issue uh, for farmers everywhere, but particularly for hops. For hop growing, yeah. Well, Jimmy, anything to add on that note? I mean, as, as uh, you know, beer brewers and beer drinkers playing a role in our agricultural landscape? Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, people want to drink flavor, but they're also, they have a sentiment about wanting to support local. But I, th I think what what's really cool is that even up around you guys, there's some new breweries that are really great. Maybe we can talk about the beer scene up there. I know you've got Suarez Family Brewing and 
from the ground brewing and uh, you guys at Indian Ladder. I mean, that's exciting that that there's breweries springing up around, you know, where you guys are growing hops, malt, and and if there's any malt facilities too. Yeah, what yeah, are you well, seeing? We're, we're hoping there's going to be a malt facility. <laughs> right now, we're driving two and a half hours to have our stuff malted, so it's you know we're, we're, we'd like to have something local. But uh, yeah, we're very excited about you know some of the other breweries that are that are coming on the Suarez Family Brewery. We're we're good friends with them, and um, we were just talking with Dan last week, and he wants us to grow buckwheat for him. So, well, hopefully, we'll be able to do that for them. Lots of experimenting. Well, on that note, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the beers that you guys are producing? Well, we're just in the experimental phase. We don't have our uh, licensing yet. Uh, we're very close, apparently. But we're we're probably, for the most part, uh, going to work on um, uh, sours and fruit beers. Uh, being, you know that we are on a uh, you know. 300-acre uh, apple orchard with raspberries, blueberries, and strawberries, and, and all those. So we're working on those kind of things, and and of course we'll you know have a have IPA as well because you know we are a hop farm. But uh, we've been doing a lot of experimentation with that, and we've been actually experimenting as we're doing cider as well um, because we we do have a cider press on the farm. Um, so we've been, you know, experimenting with some barrel-aged ciders and uh, some dry hopping of ciders and uh, adding blueberries to ciders. So we're we're very excited uh, when we can actually uh, sell some of these products to the public. I think I think what the test batches have been being very well received. So we're very excited. So maybe um, something to look forward to if we come up your way to help with the hop harvest. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to kind of round out the discussion, taking uh, taking us way out and talking a little bit about policy and how um, I think there's been some really interesting things coming out of the governor's office with regards to um, incentivizing and promoting the craft beer movement. And I'm, I'm wondering if maybe starting with you, Jimmy, you can talk a little bit about what that state level support has meant for the craft beer community. I mean, n- number one, it's just been they streamlined the state liquor authority, um, it, which was long overdue. You know, it, a lot of the rules went back to the, the end of prohibition. And uh, the current administration has just gone and clean, cleaned up a lot, a lot of outdated rules and regulations. And, you know, um, it, it's more streamlined. You can do a lot of license processing online. But number one, it's, it's, it's a farm brewery, brewery license. I mean, it's just an incentive to and, – and it's starting really low. The goals are very – I think you have to purchase 10% of your ingredients from New York State at this point. And there's targets that are going to be hit. But the, the, the incentive is, yeah, buy from New York State farms and farm products, and you can sell the products. And uh, the rules are very liberal in terms of selling out of your brewery as a tasting room. And, and they've even modified it so a lot of just smaller microbreweries can now set up tap rooms within their brewery. So it's come a long way, but I, th- I think the goal is that everyone wants to drink local. Everyone, there's room enough for a small brewery in every town and every community. In New York City, I think there could be a, a brew pub on every corner like there is a coffee bar. Yeah, no, I I like that. And I do you know, kind of the things that you're pointing out there as where it being kind of um, super, sounds super realistic in scope. It sounds like they had some people from the community at the table when they were drafting kind of what exactly this um, program was going to look like. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, the New York State Brewers Association has taken the lead for a long time. It was Dave Kataleski, who's in Syracuse with Empire, and, and they've grown, and, and they really had Albany's ear. And, and now Dave Kataleski is also, he's, he's opening a brewery on, on a farm property as well. So everyone's like, it's, everyone's walking the, talking the, walking the talk, right? Yeah. Well, walking the walk. <laughs> turning it over to, um, I think we'll turn it over to you, Dieter, and then Lori. And what I would love for you guys to share is, I know, Dieter, you had mentioned you are, you know, waiting for some licensing. But if there's other areas that kind of state policies are making your work easier or harder. And then handing it over to Laura to kind of wrap us up because I know you work so closely with American Farmland Trust and how um, that organization's work might kind of dovetail into creating a better um, beer industry here in New York State. But, Dieter, we'll start with you. Well, the, the, the licensing as far as the state went for us went very quickly. And it, was, it was very easy. Uh, we just we sort of got hung up a little bit in the licensing uh, with the uh, not really the license it was the permit to manufacture um, of cider and beer because in some cases uh, the, the state is more progressive um, at changing the laws than the federal government has. Uh, they, we were having an issue with they, the federal government doesn't like the idea of a cidery inside a brewery or a brewery inside of a cidery. So we've we've had to do some machinations on the farm here in order to um, kind of appease them, um, and uh, that that uh, that took many months. But I think we're we're through that phase, and so we're just basically waiting for that permit, and we'll walk it over to the SLA, and then I think we're good to go. Ooh, I can't wait. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it, the state's been great, and it was it was really, you know we were just going to be a, a production hop farm, um, but you know, value added products for a farm is is where it's at, and what's the best value added product? You know, it's, it's beer and cider. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome. Well, Lori, we'll let you have the last word here. Oh, okay. Well, um, you know, I think in terms of Governor Cuomo's relationship to agriculture, it's been interesting to see it develop over the years. Um, you know, he's essentially an urban person who hasn't spent a lot of time on farms. I think the most time I've seen Governor Cuomo on farms was during situations like uh, Hurricane Irene when he was on farms that had been devastated by severe weather, and that was part of his sort of evolution of his thinking and that in Superstorm Sandy about publicly acknowledging that climate change is happening. Um, in terms of, of his approach towards agriculture, um, I think everything is really seen through the lens of economic development. And, um, you know, agriculture is really the uh, most the activity that lies at the foundation of all economies around the world, and uh, this one is no different. So I think that it makes a lot of sense. Um, helping agriculture through fostering economic development um, is is a natural fit, and this was what the farm brewery law has done. Um, it's sort of Cuomo has focused on the intersection of um, agriculture, economic development, and tourism, and I, I think that this craft beverage and farm-based beverage industry is something that's going to work extremely well. I see huge potential, um, you know, in, even internationally for for these products coming out of New York State. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. It's been such a pleasure having you on. Thank Thanks you, Aaron. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Aaron.
So um, I know you guys are going to want to follow up more with these amazing guests. Uh, you can find Jimmy here on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday night as host of Beer Sessions Radio. Uh, also follow him on Twitter at Jimmy Pot and Pan. And any other recs for July Beer Month, Jimmy? What should people be putting on their calendar? Well, it, it's winding down. Next Wednesday, big part of July Good Beer Month is recognizing the small independently owned craft beer bars in the area. So on July 29th at Jimmy's number 43, we're going to give out the 7th Annual uh, Good Beer Seal Awards. And on July 30th, Edible Manhattan, Edible Brooklyn hosts their annual uh, Good Beer event. And I do want to give a little shout out to the, the Good Beer Passport. Um, definitely, if you are in the New York City area, Google that. Um, a really cheap way, I think it's like 37 bucks to for 35 pints of beer at great um, breweries and bars all across the boroughs. And they're making a donation to Heritage Radio Network, and too. And they're yeah. supporting us. Good so beer drink beer and support Heritage Radio Network. Duh. Um, uh, also, of course, check out this amazing book by Lori and Dieter. It's called, again, The Hop Grower's Handbook, The Essential Guide for Sustainable Small-Scale Production for Home and Market. Um, brought to you by um, Chelsea Green, one of my favorite publishers to, to work with. And uh, you can find it wherever great books are sold. Want to give a shout out to uh, Jack in the booth, who's engineered my show today. Um, if you didn't catch that, uh, the music break was provided by Odetta Hartman. She's got a new album out. It is awesome. And of course, our theme song, as always, is by Obey City. Um, definitely check them. Uh, follow them on Twitter and uh, download their music. Um, thank you guys for tuning in. If you like what you heard, tell your friends. Um, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Definitely uh, get in touch. You can tweet me directly. It's Aaron underscore Fairbanks. And stay tuned. Um, just after the show here, we have a little teaser clip um, with Chef Marco Canora and some amazing snack, ha- snack hacks. Um, checking out another great show on the Heritage Radio Network, The Food Scene. Um, a little taste and uh, you get to find out what Cacio Pepe is. So hang tight. That's coming right up. There's so much misinformation out there, and and everybody thinks that eating well needs to be uh, surrounded with deprivation, and it's like it's not deprivation at all. Like I'm a I'm a fucking hedonist. Chef Marco Canora shares some snack hacks on episode 226 of the Food Scene, hosted by Michael Harlan Turkel. I love food. I eat food like crazy. I don't need to be hungry to eat food. It is just like a huge part of my life. And, you know, a lot of people are afraid of this idea of eating well because they think that you turn your back on all that stuff. And no, it doesn't mean you turn your back on loving food. It just means you have to educate yourself and think differently about it. So when you think of popcorn, do you instantly think, oh, that's fiber. That's going to clear me out. Um... Yeah, you know, I, I th- yes, I think about popcorn and then I say, well, let's make sure I put the right fat on it and and let's make sure, you know, I'm getting a good quality popcorn that's not some kind of highly mass-produced GMO popcorn and then it's great popcorn and I'll grate some really good pecorino cheese on it and put a boatload of uh, black pepper on it and put a big hunk of really good grass-fed butter on it and some nice sea salt and, man, it's fucking delicious, decadent popcorn that I could eat a tub of it until I'm sick. 
And I'm not going to feel so bad about it, right? Because of you now, kachu e pepeing something is like a yeah. verb in our house. <laughs> right. We always have that hunk of pecorino. This was an excerpt from episode 226 of The Food Scene, hosted by Michael Harlan Turkel. Did you like it? The Food Scene episodes are available on our website or on iTunes. Dig in for more. This piece was brought to you by Bonnie Plants. BonniePlants.com. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.